In your Bibles tonight, we would direct your attention uh, to Isaiah 66. If you're using the Pew Bible this evening, that's found on page 862. After we read from the Word of God, we would then turn your attention in the Forms and Prayers book in your pew rack to the Heidelberg Catechism. This evening we come to Lord's Day 46, and that's found on page 253. As you find those references, uh, a word of explanation for what we're doing this evening, what we do most Sunday evenings, uh, all preaching should be biblical. Every sermon should be biblical. Indeed, if it's not based upon Scripture, it's not preaching and it's not a sermon. But there are different types of biblical sermons. There is what is commonly known as a textual sermon in which a certain particular passage of Scripture is, is read and explained and applied. And, and yes, other passages are used to shed light in the interpretation of that particular passage. But in a textual, expository sermon, usually one specific text uh, is preached on. And then there's topical preaching, still, of course, biblical, but rather than one particular text, uh, a biblical truth, a biblical doctrine, a biblical theme is chosen, uh, and a variety of Scripture passages uh, are drawn uh, that support, that reveal, that shed light uh, upon that biblical truth. And what we have in the Heidelberg Catechism uh, is a guide for topical preaching. The Heidelberg Catechism, of course, is a man written document, and we receive it and believe it to be a faithful summary of biblical teaching and biblical truth. And we've used this in the Reformed churches of the Dutch pedigree for hundreds of years because we believe it's a good and a profitable and a faithful guide. It walks us through the variety of doctrines that are essential to the Christian faith. And as we've made our way week by week through the Heidelberg Catechism, we come to the closing section that walks us through uh, the Lord's Prayer, uh, beginning with the, the preface or the uh, introductory uh, address of the Lord's Prayer, and then petition by petition. So, we're going to be reading two verses uh, for opening from Isaiah 66, but we would encourage you to keep your Bible uh, close by as we'll be uh, referencing a number of other passages this evening. We begin first with Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Then we turn over to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 46, which begins by asking in question 120, why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? And the answer, to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer, what should be basic to our prayer, a childlike reverence and trust that through Christ, God has become our Father and will much less refuse to give us what we ask in faith then will our parents refuse us the things of this life? Uh, then question 121 asks, why the words, who is in heaven? And the answer, these words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way and to expect from his almighty power everything needed for body and soul. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to continue uh, this evening what I 
had said I would attempt to do last Sunday evening, uh, and in all of our sermons dealing with prayer, especially aim for the children and the young people of the congregation. I was reminded this morning uh, of what an important part of our congregation uh, these children and young people are. As you saw, uh, the numbers of them stand in, in front here and present their Christmas program. A reminder to the preacher, preach to the children. And when you preach to the children and the young adults, those who are spiritually mature adults will also appreciate uh, and glean uh, much fruit. So, boys and girls and young people, prayer is very important. And the first words that you say are very important. This is true in other areas of life as well. Now, I know to some extent that most communication nowadays between people takes place by way of texting, perhaps. But imagine you call somebody, a good old-fashioned phone call. Maybe even you say, well, I need to talk to Grandma, or I need to talk to Grandpa, and you say, well, I'll just text Grandpa, I'll just text Grandma, and maybe your parents say, well, no, just call them. And you go, I don't want to call them. It's just easier to text them. But your parents persist, and you go along with it, and as you dial, you think, what am I going to say? What am I going to say when they pick up the phone? Those first words that you say when you hear hello on the other end of the phone, those are important words. And the first words you say usually say something about the relationship that you have with the person that you're calling. I mean, if you call grandpa or grandma, you're probably going to say, hi, grandma, hi, grandpa. It's me. But now let's say you have to call some business. Maybe you have to make a phone call for your, your winterum classes, and you have to call a business, or you have to talk to, to somebody who's a professional. And maybe there you become a little bit more nervous as you make that call. And unless you have a complete slip of the mind, which I sometimes have, when the other person answers the phone, you probably aren't going to say, hi, Grandma, hi, Grandpa. The point I'm trying to make is the first words you say in a conversation reveal something about the nature of the relationship that you have with that person. So how should we begin our prayer? What should be the first words we say? Now, we don't always have to use the exact formula that our Lord Jesus Christ gave us, but it's good to use that formula. The disciples, they came, you remember we read this last Sunday night, the disciples came, and, and John the Baptist had been teaching his disciples how to pray, and the disciples of Jesus, they saw that, and they also saw how our Lord would pray, and, and they come and they say, Lord, teach us to pray, and our Lord does. And as he teaches the disciples to pray, he teaches us also to pray. And he says, when you pray, 
pray in this manner. In those very first words, our Father in heaven. I want to consider those words underneath this theme, praying to our Father. Well, notice, first of all, the attitude in praying to our Father, and then secondly, the basis for praying to our Father, and then thirdly, the privilege in praying to our Father. So the Lord says, when you pray, begin your prayer along these lines, our Father who art in heaven. Well, notice the attitude, the basis, and the privilege in praying to our Father. The attitude in praying to our Father, when we talk about attitude, we mean the the condition of the soul, that which is inside our heart. Boys and girls, if you are nervous, you might say, well, that's an attitude, that's a condition of, of your person. But if you are comfortable, if you are safe, if you feel okay talking with somebody, that's also a certain attitude. That's what we have in mind here. How should we come and approach God? What should the attitude of our heart be? Well, first of all, it should be an attitude of trust, of trust. The Christian can and the Christian should have an attitude of trust, of a solid reliance, of a certain comfort, a certain sense of safety, a certain sense of security even, that's based upon a close confidence in a person and a closeness in the relationship to that person. When you trust someone, you feel safe. You feel secure telling them things. Now, the opposite, if, if if you don't trust someone... Well, then you're quite hesitant about sharing things with them. You don't know what they'll do. You don't know what they'll think of you. They don't know who they'll share whatever you say to them. So, for example, if if someone is known to be a gossip or a slanderer, you're probably very, very reserved in what you tell that person, or at least you should be. Because always remember, those who gossip to you are also those who most likely gossip about you. But the Lord says it's not that way in prayer. God doesn't gossip about us. God doesn't slander us. God doesn't mock us. God doesn't ridicule us. God doesn't tease us. So there's this certain sense of trust that we can share our life with the Lord. Because the Lord, and the theological term is omniscient, the Lord knows all things already. He knows things about us that we don't even know ourselves. Nobody knows us as well as our Heavenly Father. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our hopes. He knows our fears. He knows our dreams. He knows also our disappointments. If you would turn back to Psalm 73, uh, you find this idea of this this trust in the person of the Lord, including, of course, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, expressed by the psalmist in Psalm 73, beginning at verse 23, continuing all the way through the end of the psalm. Uh, Just as as I read this, note this, this theme of trust. Verse 23 
Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all your works. So when we pray, we ought to pray with a certain confidence that our Father knows us. And our Father loves us. He never gossips about us. He never unnecessarily criticizes us. He never unjustly chastises us. He's always characterized by a heart of compassion. A text here that I would refer you to is found in Hebrews 4, uh, verses 14 through 16. Now here, of course, the direct application is to the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And the author to the Hebrews writes, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Notice that's in the negative. The author is saying, that's not, that's not the case. We, we don't have an unsympathetic high priest. But, positively, we have a high priest who was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Boys and girls and young people, but all of us, have, have you ever had the experience of sharing with someone a burden you had, something that you felt, and the other person couldn't relate. And maybe in their response to your sharing what you were going through, you could sense this person cannot relate. And maybe that person's reaction towards you was not what it should have been because they couldn't relate. They didn't understand. That's never the case when the Christian comes in prayer. Christ never says to the Christian, I don't get what you're talking about. Christ never says, I, I don't understand what you're talking about. I don't understand what you're dealing with. He always understands. And he understands not just in a, in a, in a cold, abstract detached kind of way. He sympathizes with you. He has a soft heart so that when you're heavily weighed down, he's heavily weighed down. And, and children, my father used to always say this. He said so many times, you won't understand what it's like to be a father until you become a father. And it's true. And, and, and when a child is hurting, the parent is hurting. And every single faithful parent 
would say, that's right, that's true. And the same is also true spiritually speaking. When the children of God are hurting, properly understood, reverently said, the Son of God is hurting, sympathizing. And when we come in prayer, it's not just some robotic activity where we offer up some words, like you'd speak perhaps to a genie in a bottle and you hope for the best, but you come with this attitude of trust, but also then, of course, an attitude of humility. Not with some flippant, irreverent type of behavior, but that humble approach that a child ought to have also in speaking to his or her earthly father. And this humility, of course, is a result of who we are speaking to when we call upon the name of the Lord. That's why I chose to read there from Isaiah 66. Heaven is the the footstool of God. You can think also of the well-known passage in Isaiah 6, verse 5, where Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, and uh, he uses inspired words, of course, but, but words that just kind of grasp at the splendor of God as the majesty of God overflows the heavens and, and fills the earth. And then Isaiah says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And there needs to be balance. I've said this a number of times. There needs to be balance in our theology. There needs to be balance in our prayer. There needs to be balance in our worship. And there is balance in this instructive formula that Christ gives us. When you pray, pray, our Father. Notice the eminence, the closeness, the tenderness, but also he quickly adds the words, our Father who is in heaven. So yes, we come with a childlike confidence, but also with a childlike reverence, knowing that we are addressing the eternal God who is infinite in all of his perfections. So when you pray, in essence, and again, what I mean by that, boys and girls, you don't have to begin every single prayer using these exact words, our Father who is in heaven. But that spirit, childlike trust, childlike humility, and it's good to use those simple words. Our Father, who is in heaven. But how can we say that? That's our second point, the basis for praying to our Father. How can I, a mere creature of the dust, a sinful creature of the dust, how can I approach the eternal God who is infinite in his majesty and say, our Father, who is in heaven, Well, the basis is upon the work of Christ and the status of adoption. Here I would reference you to Hebrews 10, verse 19 uh, through 22. Uh, There the author of the Hebrews writes, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us 
through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Upon what basis can I call God my Father, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, more specifically, His shed blood, His redemptive blood. And boys and girls, I hope that you learn about the Old Testament and the tabernacle and the temple and and the various parts of the furniture that were in the tabernacle and the temple and, and the whole Levitical priest system and how there was the outer court around the the tabernacle and the temple where where people could go, and then there was the inner court, and then there was the holy place inside the temple, then there was the most sacred, the most set-apart area of the temple, the most holy place. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant. Inside that Ark of the Covenant, uh, a beautiful box Uh, There was, of course, the the copy of stone of the Ten Commandments. And and there was manna put in there. And there was a lid on it called the mercy seat. And over the lid, uh, there were two angels that looked down upon that mercy seat. And as this was placed into the most holiest place, a brilliant cloud of glory at the dedication of the temple, came down the Shekinah glory, and it dwelt there. And that that symbolized that that God was there in a very special way. Now, not anybody could just walk in the most holy place flippantly. One time a year, the high priest could enter into the most holy place, but he always had to bring something with him. He always had to bring blood. Blood of a sacrificial a sacrificial animal. If he would try to enter in and stand before the Ark of the Covenant without blood, he would surely die. And that all pointed forward to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now when you pray, when I pray, we don't bring blood. We don't don't kill an animal first and and then walk towards our, our Father with, with blood and say, here, Lord, here, here, here's some blood. Look upon me with mercy. Look upon with me with grace. Well, why don't we do that? Because Jesus Christ has done it once and for all. So we actually do come into the presence of our Father with blood, but not our own blood. And not the blood of a bull or a goat or a lamb, but the blood that has been shed once and for all, the blood of Jesus Christ. Why can and why must the Christian call God Father? Because of what Jesus Christ has done. Because of His sacrifice, because of His substitutionary atoning sacrifice. And because the result of that sacrifice is a peaceful fellowship, a peaceful fellowship between Almighty God and the repentant, believing sinner. 
Uh, this is expressed, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 19 through 22, and, and there's many implications that come out of this passage. In Colossians 1, verse 19 through 22, it says, For it pleased the Father that in Him, that is in Jesus Christ, all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile, notice that words, to reconcile, to bring about a peaceful restoration of a relationship of harmony. This reconciliation of all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now notice this, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Boys and girls, have you ever done something wrong and got in trouble with your, your dad or your mom? I'm going to assume that you have. I know I did when I was a, a boy. And when I had done something wrong, and I knew that my mom and dad either were going to find out or had already found out, it could almost make me sick to my stomach. I knew I had done wrong. I knew I was in trouble. But then there'd be a meeting. There'd be a talk. And yes, there'd be certain ramifications, we'll just call it. Never out of, never out of anger were those ramifications given, but appropriate corrections, we'll call them. But then once everything had been dealt with, it was like a weight was lifted off. Once you knew, okay, that's been dealt with. We're good again. It seemed like the steps of, were just lighter. You could, you could bounce around. There wasn't this dread hanging over you. That's something of the spirit that the Christian can and should have. Because our sin has been dealt with. There's peace. There's peace between the Christian and God. On what basis? Only the basis of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of his work, there is also then the status of adoption. Now, there are many silly teachings, boys and girls. We call them false teachings, or we call them heresies. Silly teachings that, that aren't from the Bible. And one of the silliest teachings is the idea that, that every single person is a son of God or a daughter of God. Now, we acknowledge, right, God created everybody. But not everybody is a son of God. Not everybody is a daughter of God. Not everybody has the status of being in the family of God. That belongs only to the Christian. That belongs only to the person who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And we don't have time to go too deep into the truth of adoption. But what adoption is also in Scripture is that a person 
is taken into the family and given the status of a son. And I use son especially because there's some, some legal implications that come out of the adoption of a son in the New Testament context because a son that was adopted had all the same rights and privileges as a natural son, as a biological son, as a son who was born from the flesh and blood of a father and a mother. And now, of course, Jesus Christ, so to speak, is the eternal Son of God in a very unique, particular way. So Jesus is the Son of God in a way that we are not sons of God, but we are sons of God by virtue of adoption. And what that means is that we also have the right to call our Father our Father. And it's a right that God wants us to exercise. No earthly father, if he's, a, if he's a godly man, no earthly father wants his children not to call him father. Oh, fathers de- delight to hear, especially, you know, when, when the child first begins to speak, uh, when they first stammer out, daddy, dada. Sometimes it's somebody, something that nobody else can actually interpret. But the parents can't. Oh, he's saying, Daddy, really? I didn't catch that at all, but I'll take your word for it that that's what he's saying. But there's a delight. And and grandparents, don't you have this also? Maybe it's Papa. Maybe it's Opa. Whatever tradition you're following. Maybe it's Grandpa. Okay, so you're you're a grandfather. You want your grandchildren to come in and, and refer to you, you know, well, Mr. So-and-so, I'm here. I mean, imagine that your, your young grandchild came over and said, well, well, formerly, Mr. So-and-so, I'm here to spend the afternoon. You'd say, why are you calling me Mr. So-and-so? I'm Grandpa. And, and if our children came and said, well, Reverend Greg Lubbers, I'm, I'm here for family dinner, you'd say, why are you calling me that? I'm dad. I'm your father. Oh, yes, I'm also your pastor. But in this setting around our dinner table, call me dad. Call me father. And the same is true for our heavenly father. He wants us to express the wonderful relationship that we have with him. He wants us to come and say, Father, Father in heaven, I am here as your son. I am here as your daughter. I am here to talk with you. I am here to share with you. I am here to thank you. I am here to confess to you. I am here to make known my needs. I am here to make known my struggles. I am here to pray. This is the privilege in our third point in praying to our Father. It grants a certain childlike confidence. Luke 11, verse 11, Jesus gives this parable, and he says, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will you give him a stone? Now, many of us can be very thankful and ought to be very thankful for the fathers that we've had in our lives, but we also recognize that Sin 
breaks in even to family relationships. So there are individuals within the church who have not had a positive experience of fatherhood. And while we are sad that that is the case for some, we set forth here the fatherhood of God as it is in its ideal. Maybe some of you went to your earthly father, asked for something that you legitimately needed, and were rejected. Now, I'm not talking about something that you just wanted, but something you legitimately needed and you were rejected. The Heavenly Father never, ever, ever does that or will do that. Never. He's the perfect Father. And with all of His power, all of His faithfulness, all of His love, His grace, His mercy, that gives us confidence to say, Father, here are my needs. Here are my struggles. Here are my failures. Here are my fears. Here are my hopes. Here are my dreams. And there is never a day for the Christian when the Father is not your Father. And there's never a day when He's not accessible. I forget off the top of my head uh, which theologian it was at Princeton Seminary. I believe it was one of the Hodges. Perhaps one of you knows or can fact check me later. But the, the legend goes that in this seminary professor's study, his young child couldn't quite reach the doorknob into his study. And so he actually lowered the doorknob so the child could open the door. Now, I won't reveal identities, but I can well remember a certain particular child skipping down the path that led to my study behind my previous home. Outside of my window, I could just catch the top of the head, the blonde hair coming, and I would sit at my desk and I'd wait, and then I would see the doorknob start to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until suddenly the tiny arm mustered enough strength to turn it and open the door and burst in, Daddy! Now, I'm not pretending I'm a perfect parent, but I never locked that door. I never hid underneath my desk. Now, there were times I thought, really? Again? Our Heavenly Father never even thinks, really? Again? And we don't even have to struggle with the doorknob of heaven. Because the door is always open. Don't ever, ever, ever doubt whether your Father wants to hear from you. Don't ever think He's too busy. Don't ever think He doesn't care. This is the childlike confidence and also expectation. You know, when the relationship is right, healthy, and good. When you ask your earthly parents for something you need, you expect 
that they will give you what you need. And that's also what we can expect. We need our daily bread. We pray for our daily bread. We can expect with good confidence that our Heavenly Father will give us our daily bread. I remember one Reformed author writing on this Lord's Day. He was writing in the midst of the Great Depression in the 1930s when material possessions were scarce, and he makes the comment, the Lord will give you your daily bread. There may not be butter to go along with it, but he will give you your daily bread. Now, we perhaps have become so accustomed not only to having bread, but also many, many other sides alongside of it. But we can expect with good confidence that our Heavenly Father will give us that which we need. We pray for deliverance from temptation. We ought to do so with a certain note of expectation that our Heavenly Father is powerful enough and loving enough to deliver us from temptation. We pray for the forgiveness of our sins. We ought to do so not with a, a rash presumption, but rather with a certain confidence. When I ask in sincerity of heart for the forgiveness of my sins, I can do so confidently expecting that my Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, has and will forgive me for my sins. And when I pray for his kingdom to come, it's not just some abstract wish, some vague hope, but I can with certain expectation come and say, Lord, let your kingdom come within my own heart in greater and greater measure, and let your kingdom come in the life of the church in greater and greater measure. And, and Father, let your reign and rule and majesty be evident and recognized to the ends of the earth. And it's not just some vague wish or some unfounded hope, but it's with the confident expectation that a child has, knowing that we have been instructed to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. Amen. Indeed, we pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, and we thank you, Lord, that you have taught us to pray such. Because left to ourselves, if we would find ourselves praying, we would, we would stutter and stammer. We wouldn't know how to begin. We wouldn't know how to address you. We'd either fall into the ditch of some arrogant presumption, or we would stand so far off that we wouldn't even dare address you. We thank you, Father, for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and for the benefits that come from his work, including the adopted status that we have as sons and daughters of the living God. And, and so we pray that you would continue and increase our confident expectation that we may know your heart for us and also your powerful hand that provides all that we need for time and also for eternity. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.